what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. If you're like me, you've never met a merit badge you didn't want to earn. I've been an overachiever all my life, a pattern that left me overloaded, overleveraged, and undersatisfied. In my new book, What Works, I explore a radically different approach to goal setting by unpacking the cultural framework of striving that we inherited and offering a new framework for practice and satisfaction. Now, it might sound a bit crazy, but there is actually so much more I'd like to explore about overachievement and how it shapes our identities, mental health, and approach to work. So I'm hosting a three-week deep dive called Recovering Overachiever Club. It's a pop-up newsletter and podcast where I'll share additional resources, ideas, and prompts to explore how overachievement shapes our lives. Plus, you'll be able to share how you're processing your own relationship with overachievement, as well as ask questions with each installment. Recovering Overachiever Club is a totally asynchronous interactive deep dive that's the perfect end of year pre-planning exercise. Because this is the first time I've tried anything like this in, oh, about a decade, Recovering Overachiever Club is pay what you want with a minimum contribution of $10. Find out more at recoveringoverachiever.club. That's recoveringoverachiever.club. My husband has a thing about smells, specifically things smelling clean. I feel like the guy ranting in the square about the world ending and no one's going to listen to me. But it's not what you might think. He doesn't insist on the house always smelling like lemon or pine or ocean breeze. His thing about the smell of clean? Well, to put it very bluntly, I think it's an it's a real big scam. Clean, of course, isn't a smell. To say something smells clean is to say the thing smells like a cleaning product. If we want things to smell like cleaning products, we'll buy more cleaning products because we'll use them more often. There's a particular ad running on YouTube right now that rankles him. It's for, no surprise, Febreze. I literally use this every day to make my house smell amazing. After I make the bed, after my dog jumps off the couch, so I can wear my jacket or jeans one more time before I wash them again. It even what are those Febreze, those Febreze commercials <laughs> talking about? Not only do you cover up the things, it's just like, you can wear your jeans for like two more days if you just spray this crap on it, right? Or I spray it in my bed when I make the bed so that it smells fresh. It's like, what the f This is f***ed up on a very level. I'm inclined to agree with my dear husband. Marketing the smell of clean has certainly changed our expectations at home and out in the wider world. It's introduced new chemicals into our environments and conflated the fragrance of clean with actual cleanliness. This is an example of values hijacking. 
I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. The companies that make household products know that many of us value having a clean home. But lots of products, including many you can make yourself with pantry staples, will clean and disinfect to varying degrees. As the household product market became more and more crowded, marketing teams looked for ways to differentiate. They quickly discovered that scent was a way to make their product stand out. Then, in the 90s, Febreze hit the market. While it promised to eliminate odor, not only cover it up, Febreze solidified the smell of clean as the barometer for cleanliness in the mind of the American consumer. As the ad I played at the top will attest, it's less important for something to actually be clean, provided it smells clean. And that's how the value for cleanliness became a value for things smelling clean. Now, not only did this represent a major opportunity for the deodorizer and home fragrance markets, it represented an opportunity for cleaning products to further market themselves with more sophisticated or seemingly eco-friendly scents. And that's what value hijacking does. It takes an intrinsic personal value that isn't easily exploited for profit and translates it into a superficial version of itself that is easily commercialized and exploited. Lest you think that Sean and I live in some sort of utopian bubble through which no marketing can influence us or our values, we have quite the assortment of Mrs. Meyer's soaps in our house. Okay, last last question. What about all of the Mrs. Meyer stuff that we have in the house? If I have some self-awareness of my some of the hypocrisy that I'm presenting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I have chosen the brand that looks greener by its labeling. <laughs> um, well, thank you for calling me out on on that. That's that's a good thing. If you've ever been to a Target or a Whole Foods, themselves a playground of values hijacking, you know Mrs. Myers. It's the brand of cleaning products and soaps that are self-consciously marketed as eco-friendly and indie. They're packaged to look like something you might pick up at a downtown shop with a support small business sign in the window. By the way, Small Business Saturday, coming up this week, is an initiative of American Express that was designed to get more small businesses to accept Amex cards, which have much higher fees than Visa or MasterCard. More values hijacking. I was today years old when I learned that Mrs. Myers is a brand of the Caldrea Company, a home fragrance and personal care products company. Caldrea, in turn, is owned by S.C. Johnson, which also manages brands like Windex, Raid, and Pledge. Now, if you put a bottle of Windex next to a bottle of Mrs. Meyer's window cleaner, it would be hard to guess that they're manufactured by the same parent company. And that's because marketers and designers have become adept at coding a set of values into the presentation of a product, regardless of whether that product actually aligns with those values. 
The rhetoric of the image is enough to make me and many others brand loyal. Now, I don't know how the actual ingredients or manufacturing processes differ between Windex and Mrs. Myers. I'm sure there are some, but probably not as many as I'd like to believe based on the branding. And that's just the thing. My consumer brain has become so hijacked by this kind of marketing that I rarely do due diligence on products that are so clearly directed toward people like me. Value hijacking short circuits my critical thinking so that I naturally gravitate to the signifier rather than pursuing the signified. Because why actually create the ideal if you can just tell people your product is the ideal? Now, trust me when I say I could spend hours telling you about this and still not be done but I'm going to leave our little object lesson in values hijacking here and turn over the mic to my friend, fellow Yellow House media podcaster and diversity, equity, and inclusion coach, Erica Corday. Erica and I talked all about values hijacking for an episode of her podcast, Pause on the Play. If you dig the kinds of topics I cover here on What Works, I know you'll love Erica's show too. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts or at pauseontheplay.com. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Pause on the Play. As always, it's amazing to see you here where you are challenged to reconsider your normal and consider realities you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, here to get the dialogue going. So I went to kind of sit down at my computer and start recording, and it's so hot today. I was like, oh, no, wait, I got to record. I got to turn my fan off. Oh, no, I got to turn my fan off. (laughs) I got so sad. I was like, it's going to be hot. So this is just to let y'all know. This is how much I love you. I'm going to be hot. And I'm already somebody that gets really hot and really sweaty. So I love you and you're welcome. Um, So this episode is one that I I really am glad that um, it happened. And it was absolutely worth me turning my fan off. Let me say that too. Um, But it was just... There are some conversations where, you know, you'll hear me in the episode talk about my nonlinear thinking and how, you know, just the being able to have these ideas and going through them and the layers. This conversation gives you a great insight into like why I love conversation, how I love for conversation to just kind of show up and be like, oh, wait, but there's that. Oh, wait, there's that. Oh, and here's more. And here's another layer. All of those pieces showed up in such a powerful way in this conversation. And I'm just so excited to share it with you. I was just graced today by the amazing thoughts and insight and sharings from Tara McMullen. So she is my amazing guest today. And for those that are not aware of Tara, let me tell you a little bit about who she is. Tara is a writer, podcaster, and producer. For over 13 years, she studied small business owners, how they live, how they work, what influences them, and what they hope for the future. She's the host of What Works, a podcast about navigating the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. Tara is also the co-founder of Yellow House Media, a boutique 
podcast production company. Her work has been featured in Fast Company, The Startup, The Muse, and The Huffington Post. Her first book, What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting, will be released in November. Y'all, I cannot tell you how I'm excited I am for this book. I'm so excited for this book. I cannot tell you. And we talked about this in so many of the things that we touched on Um and it, it, it's absolutely um, pieces that uh, will kind of probably show up in the book and in, in their own way with, with their own kind of breathing room and the life that they take on there. But this conversation is just outstanding. So can't wait for you to listen or to read it in the article. Let's do this. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the stolen land of the Susquehannock, Piscataway, Nantigo people, native to this area known as Maryland. Ooh, I'm so excited, so excited. Tara, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I am also super excited. So thank you for having me, Erica. Oh my gosh. Like I am so excited because, you know, of course I've I've been on your show and I've been fortunate to do events with you. And I feel like you bring so much just amazing insight in the conversations that you're a part of, that you facilitate. So I don't expect this to be any different and not trying to like set you up here, but like, this will be amazing and just so glad for everyone to be able to witness this conversation. Well, I will try and live up to that, uh, (laughs) that expectation. (laughs) You got this. So I want to start by just acknowledging the fact that I really do enjoy the fact that like whenever I've been in conversation with you, the most kind of like beautiful things would just kind of pop up on their own. And this topic um, was something that we weren't necessarily talking about, but it did show up. And the minute you said it, I was like, ooh, 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 that. And that entire piece of how our personal values can sometimes uh, get co-opted by capitalism. And honestly, I think there's maybe a little bit more awareness that our business values will get co-opted by capitalism, but the personal ones, it's really easy for them to kind of sneak in. And then before you realize it, it has kind of co-opted all of your values. And the fact that you literally just kind of gave me that concept. So just like right off the cuff, so succinctly, I'm like, oh, that is a thing. And it did give me pause to be like, huh, I don't know if I've thought about it in that way. And it definitely did put me in a place of, have I thought about that for myself? And it was it was kind of an interesting thing to be like, oh, I don't know that I've explored that. And so I was kind of mm-hmm. curious to start with like, what what kind of gave you that thought in that way, because the minute that you presented that, I was like, oh, like that hit home. Yeah. Um, It hit home for me too when I landed on it. Um, (laughs) So I would say that there's two parts to the answer to this question. The first part was sort of a, a process of personal deconstruction around how I structured my work and my life in terms of goals and being achievement-oriented and being very set on, you know, working my way up whatever ladder was in front of me. You know, I work for myself, so it's not so much a corporate ladder as it is just an idea of, okay, this is the 
first rung. This is the next rung. This is the rung after that. Um, and realizing how compelled I was to um, be constantly trying to get higher and higher or do more and more, achieve more and more, um, and how much that wasn't serving my life. And it took uh, it took some time and some serious introspection to start to identify, well, the reason that I'm feeling this way and the reason I feel compelled to do these things is because the system all around me is telling me that that's what smart, successful people with lots of potential do is we, you know, we climb these ladders, we get higher and higher up in society. Um, and so once I realized that and started to unpack that, I started to notice how much that those ladders were informed by the values of capitalism and the system of capitalism. And capitalism, I think it's really important to point out, is an economic system. And it's also a political system, meaning it is a system through which power is brokered. And it is a cultural system. In fact, capitalism really is a, is a totalizing force. And I'm sure I'll talk more about that at some point. But really, everything that we do, um, unless we are consciously avoiding it, everything that we do, everything that we know, how we know ourselves is uh, translated through the language of capitalism. And I think that's a really, it's, that almost, it's kind of bleak, but at the same time, like once you realize it, right. there's a lot that you can do with that level of awareness and consciousness. So that sort of personal deconstruction was on one side of that. And then I started working on my my book, which was about that personal deconstruction and then what I constructed in its place in terms of how I set goals differently now, how I plan for my life and my work differently, all of that. Um, and then very early this year, maybe it was the end of last year, um, I was introduced to a philosopher named C.T. Nguyen. And Nguyen is a philosopher of games, or his, his main field of study is around the philosophy and theory of games and gamification. Uh, and I first heard him on the Ezra Klein show, then I heard him on the Conspirituality podcast. I read everything that I could of his, um, even though a lot of it was extremely dense. And he gave me another way to think about the way our personal values can be captured by capitalism. And that is through this game theory. And so the idea in brief is that a game is essentially an artificial environment with a set of clear rules, a clear objective, and a clear points system, or at, at least a system by which you know what behavior is good and what behavior is you know, just not helping you in the game. And so when it comes to a game like, say, basketball or poker, that is that kind of construction of a world, of a scenario, is really helpful. And it's fun. And we enjoy being in these places where, where value and values are really clarified um, because we live in such a gray space all the time where mm -hmm. there's so many different ways to see whatever it is that we're seeing or thinking about. Um, 
But what Nguyen sort of offers on top of that is how much games have come to structure our lives outside of the quote-unquote game. Uh, And I think capitalism is one of the ways that this happens so very frequently, and specifically neoliberal uh, financialized capitalism. In capitalism, there is a serious point system, right? We know what kinds of activities get us more points, i.e. more dollars, more stuff, more accolades, a higher uh, worth on the market as a worker. We know what all those shoulds are because we were born into them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so we end up taking action that gets us more points so that we can get further in the game. The problem, of course is that those points don't necessarily reflect our values and very often are in opposition to our values. But we don't notice it because the system so clearly shows us, well, if you do this, then you get more points. And who doesn't love scoring points? I love scoring points, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so Nguyen calls this process uh, value capture in terms of, you know, he's really talking about it in terms of taking a metric like a a school grade and uh, kind of seeing how a school grade, uh, A, B, C, D, F, is a sort of a distillation of a complex set of metrics, a complex set of values. And so applying it to capitalism, applying it to how we structure our lives and how we think about what we want, I call it values hijacking because it's not Mm. simply that uh, this complex set of values is reduced to a simple equation. It's that our very values end up being recast in the system in order to further the ends of capitalism as opposed to furthering our ends as humans. Does that make sense? It does, because one of the things that was coming up as you were saying it was there was, you know, there's of course the, you know, here's the points and how like, here's here's my values and here's the things that I've done and now I get these points. But it's also like, oh, but now your value, like people mm-hmm. will inherently feel as though me and my own worth, not just like, you know, my home, my car, my bank account, but me. Where yep. do I rank? Like, what, what, what is mine? And it's like, oh, this has gotten, this has gone wrong, real bad. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, that is essentially the totalizing force of capitalism. So within capitalism, everything Literally everything is recast through market forces and valuation and the profit motive. So the only way that we can understand worth, understand value, understand uh, exchange is through these simplified metrics. So dollars and cents, uh, you know, uh, and and profit, essentially. I mean, it, it all comes kind of comes down to the money piece. Mm -hmm. Um, But we lose sight of the fact that that's all constructed. It's not real. No. (laughs) It's real in, obviously, in very concrete ways that matter about whether you can put a roof over your head or whether you can send your kid to college or whether you can uh, take take a taxi to work or even take the bus to work, right? Like there are very real 
physical, concrete considerations around this point system and how we operate within it. And also, I think it's valuable to know, as um, Paco de Leon told me, money is a shared delusion, right? So um, it, it is all made up. And that Mm -hmm. means that it is actually very malleable if we allow it to be. And that's the thing that I think is always kind of a dangerous piece of it, because obviously, uh, you know, things like, let's say that the stock market or Bitcoin, like insert thing here, you can have this moment where something will come up and you're like, but that's not real. And then you go down this existential rabbit hole of like, but what is real? And it starts to get (laughs) a little scary. And it's like, what you said is true. There's the real piece of it of like, can I feed my family? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, but I'm trying to feed them with something that doesn't technically exist. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's no wonder it screws with our heads, right? <laughs> right. Right. And so it it is challenging. And this is where it does make me wonder, you know, if you have any thoughts of kind of like, I'm wondering like what it is that has kind of happened via capitalism that really forced our values to take a back seat when it comes to the actions that we take, the way that we think our state of being, but what's also kept it there. It's one thing to be like, oh, well, you know, I just got to kind of keep this job or whatever. But it's also come to a place of like, they're not there temporarily. They really are just relegated to the backseat. They stay there. Yeah. And actually, I think it's bleaker than that. <laughs> so it is. I think it's not. Yeah. So it's not that our values are in the backseat. It's that our values are recast uh, through their opposites, essentially. So um, an example to think about here is the idea of conscious consumption, Mm -hmm. right? The idea that what we buy uh, can have a positive impact on the world. And okay, there are certainly things that are better choices and worse choices. There's more exploitative options and less exploitative options. But at the end of the day, uh, conscious consumption as a marketing message is about giving you the permission to buy more. And buying more is never the ethical or environmentally friendly or uh, uh, kind of uh, human choice, right? Buying more is a function of the capitalist, uh, the consumer capitalist system. And so con- conscious consumption, that that tells us that our values for uh, the earth and our values for, uh, you know, ethical labor and for, um, you know, treating people well, that tells us that those things are being exercised when in fact the opposite is often true. And of course, it is not black and white. I, I don't, anything I say that sounds black and white, just please trust me, 99% of it, I don't actually believe is black and white. But this is a case where you can really see s- some very clear values, not just taking a back seat, but literally being co-opted uh, in for the ends of capitalism so that companies can profit, so that people buy more stuff, so that stock prices rise, so that people go into more debt, right? Those are all things that benefit uh, the, the 
sort of powers that be within capitalism. Um, and there are things that don't benefit us the vast majority of the time. Uh, and they're being told, it's being told to us that this is how we exercise our values. Oh, life. Um, <laughs> that. <laughs> And, and so, yes, to what she said, it is none of this is 100 percent. It's this or that. I think that very rarely is anything um, that easily uh, broken down or distilled. I agree with that completely. And literally, there are things like you mentioned the phrase labor laws, which mm-hmm. obviously need to exist because they are very problematic concerns without having them in place. However, if you go to the root of it, why do we have laws around the way some people are allowed to labor other people for less than what they are actually laboring to create? Which is, again, the the rabbit hole of that. It's like, none of that. It's just like, um, what did someone say? Someone said something recently, and it was this whole piece of like, I don't I don't exist to labor kind of thing, that work-life balance. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's really just to trick you into thinking that there's a way to work more and still balance it with life. And that's not really a thing. These concepts are given to us to kind of give us this hope that we have not, in a sense, willfully abandoned our values in exchange of currency in the form of of capitalism points. Mm -hmm. And yet here we are, part of which, again, acknowledging this is the world that we live in, we can't completely extract ourselves from it 100%. And wherever you go, there you are kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, the minute that we are addressing the values piece, I think it, it would be really challenging to not acknowledge how ease or speed, which of course is something else that, uh, again, takes place of values or tries again to diminish whatever we still have not uh, let go of or hasn't been fully co-opted at this point or captured. Um, And that loves to then come up and it's like, well, capitalism hasn't taken this. So let's let's come in and put productivity in the mix. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, I, I feel like I'd be remiss to not kind of acknowledge, you know, Productivity, you know, the need for ease, uh, the desire of of speed and immediate satisfaction. Um, how do you think that that's also contributed for uh, capitalism to again just come in and be like, no, we're going to tell you this is your values, but really your values have already been gone. They're, they're, yeah, they're done. Yeah. So the desire for ease, the feeling of urgency. Those are uh, sort of drives that disconnect us from our own awareness, right? Mm -hmm. And when we are disconnected from that awareness, we are less likely to second guess what's being told to us. Um, And so if we kind of think of those things as biases of the system there are things that keep us on the right path and yes to productivity yes to efficiency like these are these are words that are literally just picked straight out of uh industrialization right, right. the move toward industrialization was all about creating more product 
to grow the economy and which is productivity um, and efficiency. Efficiency is how you create more profit. So productivity gives you more product to sell. Efficiency creates more profit. These are wonderful things in terms of capitalism. And, you know, I'm a productive person. I like being productive. I like things being efficient. I like things being easy, right? Like there are, it's not all bad. However, when it is the totalizing force, when it's how we understand what is valuable or what is worthy of power, that's when it starts to get really screwy. Um, And so I think that the awareness piece to kind of come back to that is huge. And reconnecting with your awareness requires slowing down. It requires some things being less efficient. It requires uh, some things maybe not happening at all. Uh, And that's something that doesn't benefit the system, but does benefit us. And the reason that awareness is so important is because we have been raised in the system. So literally from the moment we enter preschool or kindergarten, we see metrics of um, this system being exerted on us, right? We are being judged by the metrics of this system. Now, in school, it looks a particular way, right? No one's Think at least I don't think anyone's thinking about how profitable kindergartners are. Let's hope um, they. Yeah, I, I mean there are schools that are thinking about the profitability yeah. of their students, or at least the costs of their students. Right. Um, but it, it, you know, the the individual kindergartner isn't thinking about that. But the individual kindergartner may be thinking about the gold star. They right. may be thinking about um, the favor of the teacher. You know, my soon-to-be ninth grader is definitely thinking about what is going to go on her college application and whether that's going to get her into the school that she wants to go to. And she's been thinking about it for at least four years now, which really surprised me and and also just totally hit all of this home for me again. Um, so it is baked into not just our daily lives – it's baked into how we know ourselves. So, so many of the things that we uh, that we say to others about ourselves, but also our self-talk, the things that we say to ourselves, is through this language of capitalism. Oh, I'm so disorganized. Mm. Well, why is that a problem? Right. You know, I'm not a fast learner. Why is that a problem? I'm not a productive writer. Why is that a problem? Um, You know, there are certain things that we can say, okay, um, these different qualities impact our social relations in different ways, right? They impact our communities in different ways. They impact our families in different ways. But to to have sort of a a moral quality to being disorganized versus organized or a moral quality to being productive versus unproductive and Taking that on as part of our identities means that um, it, it truly is, you know, capitalism is baked into us. And so when we are unaware of how those stories are playing out, we are going to make choices that are in favor of the system versus in favor of our own personal values, of our own worldview, our own beliefs. Sometimes those things aren't mutually exclusive. 
Right. But oftentimes they are. <laughs> right. And when, the more we can be aware of it, the w- more we can make choices. You know, you made the point that we can't completely extract ourselves from the system. And I completely agree with that. Sometimes there will be choices that we have to make that are maybe not fully aligned with our personal values, but do ensure that our needs get met within the system. Right. That's a good choice to make, right? Um, however... I think it's valuable to recognize that there's a trade-off there. And so that when the opportunity, if the opportunity comes to make a different choice in the future, you know that that's available to you as opposed to only being in touch with the shoulds and the supposed tos that the system has given us. Well, there was so much in what you said and I love every piece of it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be present to everything that she says. And hopefully I remember everything when I'm done. (laughs) Because I'm not going to, like, I was in my head, my coaching brain was like, no, 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 don't just wait to, to, like, jump in. And there was so much. And everything you said, I completely agree with. And I think that there was, there's a number of pieces there. Part of it is that, you know, again, if we say ease, if we say speed, if we say uh, productivity, um, if we, I feel like if you talk about ease or efficiency or speed, there's less weight to those words. You say productivity. That's been a little bit vilified. So that one gets a little sketchy. And the reason I didn't use um, the word uh, urgency, not because it wasn't fully accurate, but because there's more awareness, even if it's just kind of in this space here and some of the spaces that I've Mm -hmm. um, been operating in that that obviously is not a good thing. And it is absolutely a tool of white supremacy, which means it is absolutely in the same sphere with capitalism. And they go very much just kind of like, let's skip on down here or, you know, scoot on down together because we're kind of one in the same. And there's this lack of awareness because we don't slow down enough to understand that that ease or speed, whether it's because of what we desire or what we desire to to do with ourselves and, and what we are producing, that it's just, it's almost like a, a gateway and we're still going in a similar place, it just feels like the kinder, gentler word. But mm-hmm. still putting us in that same type of, of place. And, you know, when you mention that entire piece of that awareness and making sure that it's not relating to who or how we are and our own value, because I have been, I'll say personally, someone that has felt like, you know, I am not a linear thinker. I am not someone that is going to give you like, this is A, this is B, this is C um, at all times. Very often I'm going to be like, well, you know, here's J and we got to go back to A. (laughs) Like I can, (laughs) can, that's just how it works. And yet that is absolutely, I'm not going to say vilify, but it's, been very often given to me as an undesirable trait of how can we, I operate. Can we unpack that for a minute? Yes, because I think that's a really interesting example. So there are there is a certain part of the system of the economy in which not being a linear thinker, being a cyclical thinker, an iterative thinker, a creative thinker, is a highly valued skill, and it is a it is cast as a moral good, right? Mm -hmm. Then there is a much larger section of the economy where it is a moral 
ill, where it is not a valued skill, where linear thinking, playing by the rules, conforming to expectations, uh, following instructions to the letter, those are the more uh, valued characteristics. Of course, the large group where that linear thinking is a valued characteristic would be sort of what we would call sort of today, the working class, right? Mm -hmm. And working class today is an extremely expansive category. Um, and I think that it includes a lot more people. Uh, is it, there's all, okay, there's all sorts of cl class systems that we could, you know, break the American populace down into. Right. But I think if you're thinking about who is working for wages, and even some who work for salaries, right? Linear thinking is a positive trait in that group. If we're looking at managers, you know, high-level managers, executives, artists, designers, the creative economy piece, then the more iterative creative thinking is the highly valuable skill. And so my guess is that one of the reasons that for you creative thinking is, well, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to speak to you personally, all the just to say that if you grow up in an environment where doing the job the way you're supposed to do the job is the value, it, it, like that's the story yes. that you hear, mm -hmm. that is going to make you feel bad about being creative. Yes. If you, yeah. And then if you grow up in a creative environment or in, where with creative thinking expectations, Far fewer people do. But if you grow up in that kind of environment, then being a linear thinker is going to be uh, almost vilified because that mm -hmm. would make you part of the working class. And that is a really good example for really seeing how supremacy culture uh, is baked into capitalism because there's an in-group and there's an out-group there, right? Or um, the cultural theorist Nancy Fraser calls capitalism an institutionalized social order. And it truly is. It is how we understand who is better than who. Yes. And and there is, a, there is an aspect of that that is, do you know your place? And that's mm. what I hear when I hear you say, yes. I'm not a linear thinker and that's a bad thing. Yes. And the interesting thing was it connected back to something else that crossed my mind in that if you have, let's, let's go with the gamifying piece of capitalism. Mm -hmm. If you have a certain amount of points, okay, let's, let's just say you're someone, you're at a point that you're finishing high school and now it's time for college. If you have enough points, you can have access to, I'm going to have a gap year, or I'm going to go backpack yep. for a while. I can go do these things and think in a however way I feel like for however amount of time, because I have amount and a certain amount of points and access, and I can go and do that. And that's actually prided. It's not something that is a deterrent where someone else that has not accumulated a certain amount of points now has to go think linearly to accumulate more points and to somehow validate themselves because you can't take that break. Who, who yep. says you can take a break? You haven't done anything yet. You don't have any points. You need to go and work and maybe you'll be able to, to have leave of, of, of such a break or such a luxury to be able to have space to think, have space mm -hmm. to be, to question your existence, to explore 
particularly to explore in the sense that things that should not be gatekept, i.e. the world that we live in, that is a resource that we should all have access to and be able to utilize and experience and explore, it's not. It's absolutely, do you have the points to come in here? Can you access this? It makes me think of a show that I watch on HBO Westworld. Do you have enough money to visit the park? If you don't, you don't Mm -hmm. get to go in and do that thing. You can't go. You can't have that experience. But if you do, you get to experience that. You, You get to revel in what happens there and to do whatever your wildest dreams have have allowed you to conceptualize is possible for you. Because why not? For everyone else, why? Not why not? Yep. And, you know, we could take that straight into the National Park Service and and all of the ways that capitalism and the capitalist worldview has screwed that Yep, piece up too. Speaking of parks, but yes. that's a different podcast, I think. <laughs> but but it's that whole piece of whether or not, you know. Honestly, I think a lot of it really does boil down to whether or not you have accumulated enough, or you are just within yourself. Um, maybe the type of person, or have become the type of person that you have access to that that worth regardless Mm -hmm. of anything else. And that's not necessarily always an easy thing when you've been conditioned to not do that, to know that you don't have uh, access to or or leave of that, to kind of almost go into the back end. And I'm I'm, going to change my points. I have enough points. You told me I didn't, but I do. And (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it's a, it's a challenging thing to, to kind of navigate that. And it, it does make me wonder, you know, as, as we go through it, I mean, and and while it may sound bleak, I think it's important to address it as it is and to language it as it is versus trying to give it fluffy language or make it seem more palatable. Like it is what it is. And then you can figure out what do I want to do? What does, what does my awareness now kind of lead me to feel like is next for me? It does make me wonder for those of us that were indoctrinated into this entity by birth. Mm-hmm. did our values ever have a chance to really take a primary role in any of this? Because it sounds like they might not have ever had a fighting chance. They didn't have a shot in hell from the they word didn't. go. They didn't. I mean, I, I can only speak from an American perspective. And beyond that, you know, an East Coast suburban perspective. Um, but what I see through research, through observation, through my own personal experiences, through coaching other people, is that none of us, not, I shouldn't say none because I don't like making blanket statements, but if you grew up in American culture, the, the likelihood that America's particular brand of capitalism and its particular value system is the underlying foundation of how you understand the rest of your values. So um, to give you an example here, imagine you're in school and you love learning. You have a real value for learning. Mm-hmm. And the way the system value or what the system values in terms of the traditional schooling system is getting good grades and excelling at tests, right? And so you learn that learning equals getting good grades and excelling at tests when we know 
That is not the case, right? There's a difference between getting good grades and doing well on tests and learning things. But through that process, you learn that studying for the test becomes the behavior that gets you the good grades, which helps you on tests. And so studying for the test becomes associated with the value of learning. And so even though you can say, yes, I have this value for learning, and that that is probably true for you, right? Everything you know about what learning means has been filtered through this system. So I I do believe that a, that it is possible and in fact likely that you can have identified a personal set of values that is unique and true and authentic to you and that that personal unique authentic set of values is understood through the filter of capitalism. And it takes unpacking the system from those values to actually understand what those values mean. So to your to your question, no, I don't think we've ever, if you haven't thought about these things before, you have almost definitely not had a chance to really live your values yet. Right. And the good news is that there's a lot of work that you can do to unpack the system and actually make different choices that do align with your values. And it all goes back to that awareness piece and, and really deconstructing those, those stories um, and, the, and the incentive structures that have been sort of substituted or, or hijacked when it comes to your values. Flaunt your fire. This is what can take you from being in a box to breaking it on your terms. Bi-weekly, India Jackson, co-founder of Pause on the Play, has conversations exploring branding and visibility. Give the Flaunt Your Fire podcast a follow for India's interview with Tara McMullen on flaunting her fire as she aligned her offerings and content with her I I couldn't agree more about going back to that awareness piece because literally if you don't have that awareness then you can't unpack you know dismantle change like insert term here around any of it because you have mm-hmm. to be able to first even recognize that it's there before you begin to shift or to change anything and the thing I think that does really kind of um, pop up for me here is I think about, I think about learning. And I know that a lot of the things that we'll do through Pause on the Play, we try to remind people that you don't want to just consume, consume, consume. You do want it to go back to actions because when it comes to any of your imperfect allyship actions, if it's just simply, I need to take in more information, it is very, very challenging to then figure out you know, what do I do next? What do I have access to? Uh, What's possible? And so you don't want to stay in that point of just packing more in. And at the same time, there's kind of that notion of, well, if you're learning, but you're only learning for learning's sake and you're not going to practice it, then what's the point? And I'm like, yeah, well, that seems like it's counterintuitive because the whole point is learning for learning's sake. That is exactly <laughs> what it is. And yet we, we're giving ourselves this narrative that, you know, oh, you 
I can I think of like when I was was younger and if if there were people that were in trade school or you decided I wanted to go learn a skill, but you didn't use that skill or you didn't currently go and employ yourself in that way. Well, that was a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why was it a waste of time yeah. to learn and to experience something? That's not what that is. That is simply giving you the narrative that if you weren't able to monetize something that you did, what was the point? That's what it really is. Right, right. And so you can kind of look at the the incentive structure, the point system underneath of that, right? There is a, the incentive structure tells us that the best use of our time is work and that the product of work is money. And so anything that we do or learn that is not, that doesn't fit into that incentive structure is either a waste or it's sort of extra. It's a nice to have. It's something that you've got to earn, right? Mm-hmm. And and so if you can identify that and you can say, okay, well, you know, I'd really like to take this class, but I don't see how it's going to help me with my job. I don't see how it's going to help me parent my kids. I don't see how it's going to help me uh, get a promotion. Um, so it's probably, you know, it's probably just a waste of my time. If you can be conscious of that thinking and ask yourself, well, why are any of those things a problem? Why why should it help me get a promotion? Why should it help me uh, in my in my current job or to in my reproductive labor? Right, the parenting is reproductive labor. You're reproducing the Thank workforce. Thank you for calling that labor. Thank you. Yes, because it yeah. is labor. <laughs> it is not not work. It is work. Yes, it is still work, and it is. I mean, that's probably a whole nother podcast episode conversation that we could have is like the role that reproductive labor uh, has within the capitalist system. Yes. The reason that men started to go to work and women started to stay home. And for the record, this is like a 20th century seismic shift, not, not something that has always been the case. Uh, The reason that that happened was because if the man went to work and the woman was there to, uh, if the woman was there at home to take care of the kids, to cook the dinner, to clean the house, then the man had more productive hours to give to the job. So it was a way of dividing the labor of life into the part that you could be paid a wage for and the part that allowed the person who was going to get the wages to do that as much as possible. It serves the ends of the capitalist system. It is, yes, it is baked into how we understand gender and how we understand relationships and how we understand, um, you know, family and all of those things. And there's, there's religious things to it as well. But in terms of the modern phenomenon of men working outside of the home and women doing the reproductive labor, that is a capitalist incentive structure, a capitalist value system. And that doesn't even, again, that could be a whole nother episode because that doesn't even acknowledge the fact of how, you know, there is a hierarchy to which of those types of laboring is worth more. And what is like, oh, well, you don't really get anything for that because you're just supposed to do that or you should be doing this or you should be grateful to do that because then you don't have to go do this. Insert like, 
shitty mindset here that is tried to be given. And it's like, oh, that. Yeah. And then like, and then there's the race component as well. Yep. Right. And white women get to go in the 70s and the 80s. White women get to go and work outside the home because people of color are are then able to provide for not acceptable wages, the child care and house care that allow the white women to do that. Um, and that is a story that's as old as time. Um, but right. um, yeah, it is It is a very long, complex topic that is very much adjacent to what we're talking about today, but but is a, is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> well, and honestly, that really just puts you in that place of having that deeper understanding and awareness of the fact that the more you pull, the more there is to pull Mm -hmm. because there's so (laughs) many layers to it. And there's so many pieces that are absolutely just the same exact thing, just in a different format with very slight shifts or nuances to it. And it's like, oh, you just put a hat on it and just didn't (laughs) call it the same thing. And it's really the same same shit. Nothing is different. It's a mustache. Right. It's like, no, it is still the same thing. It's no different. Yeah. And I think in very pause on the play fashion, it is valuable to, to celebrate each layer that you pull back. Yes. So even if you only get back to the layer where there's a little mustache and a hat on, on, the, <laughs> on the value or yes. on the, the, the behavior, yes. you know, that's a good thing yes. because now you can see, or hopefully you can see eventually that the must, you can take the mustache off and you can take right. the hat off. And now it might just have a trench coat on, but but that's a step forward as well. And then you can take the trench coat off. Yes. Um, and and it's just every single, you are not going to go from, from capitalist indoctrination to anti-capitalist, post-capitalist, post-growth, um, you know, firebrand in one step. Right. And in fact, you might not ever want to get to that last step. You might just want to have more awareness of how you operate in your life and how you operate in your work or your business. And I think that's something incredibly valuable as well. And so all of the baby steps that we can take along the way when it comes to unpacking these things, deconstructing these things, I think is incredibly valuable for overall uh, systemic and societal change. The interesting thing is, is what you gave honestly feels like an accurate answer to, you know, one of the other things I was going to ask you when it comes to that. And please feel free to elaborate if something else comes up, but just kind of that piece of, is there a way to prioritize our values so that if possible, whenever possible, they can take up more room and that we're leaving each time, even just a little bit less room each time, a little less and a little less for capitalism to exist when we are making decisions, when we are taking action, when we are, you know, in our state of being. Like, I think that awareness and that acknowledgement that like, okay, the mustache is gone. And I, 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 I witnessed the mustache. I get it. You showed up with yes. the Tom Selleck. We don't want the Tom Selleck. We're going to put that away. <laughs> You know, and, and it almost feels very like, you know, the Muppet show, like you've put on this this thing and you look like this other person. And it's like, no, like beginning to peel that back and to take off 
the little pieces of accoutrement because it hopped in your photo booth, I think does feel like a way to constantly leave just a tiny sliver space less for capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say to make that as concrete as possible, um, I'm really big on thinking about shoulds and supposed to. So what are those, essentially, what are those little stories that we tell ourselves that impact the choices that we make and the, and the behaviors um, that we perform? And those stories tend to take the form of, well, I should be doing this or I'm supposed to do that. And so what I would recommend to anyone who really wants to dig in to unpacking these things is to, you know, start a note on your phone or get out a journal or a notepad and start writing down every time you notice yourself saying, well, I should do this or I'm supposed to do that. Jot down whatever it was, you know, your should, you're supposed to. And then kind of go through a series of questions trying to dig into what exactly is going on there. So where does that should come from? What is the story behind it? What is the incentive structure that's baked into that story? What is the sort of the end goal? And in whose best interest is that end goal? Why does that incentive structure exist? And then think specifically about your per personal values, about the way that you want to operate in the world, and think about how you can reframe that story so that either it serves you or you can ch do something different. Um, I remember uh, I had a conversation with Mara Glatzel for the podcast um, this time last year, maybe. And she told me that one of the things that she needed to unpack for herself was, is she ambitious or is she ambitious because of capitalism? And she went through a whole sort of deconstruction around this and, and trying to get to the bottom of that story. And her end result was, no, I'm ambitious. I want to accomplish big things. I want to push myself. That's fine, right? But you do it because you want it. You don't do it because the the system is incentivizing you to do it. And so, um, yeah, it's not always changing our minds about things. Sometimes it's just understanding better why that thing is important to you. Um, and the more you can literally go through that process of what is the story? What's the incentive structure? What do I really believe here? The more you can do that, the more it will, it, it's like a muscle, right? You have to exercise the muscle and strengthen the muscle. And the more you'll be able to readily do it throughout your day, when you're talking to your family, when you're at work, wherever, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, it's something that can be integrated into the way you think, but it starts by just like literally doing the work. The funny part is, is I'm like, I feel like that's the one action people need to take. And I was like, I don't even know if I want to ask you now. Is there one action for them to tell? I'm like, that's the action to take. I, I mean, I thought that was the question that I was answering. So yes, please do like, <laughs> yes. And I, well, and that's the interesting thing. Cause I think the action as well as, you know, how it is that, you know, uh, capitalism gets less space to, to mm -hmm. exist and our values can, can show up more. I think they absolutely kind of are one in the same and exactly what you said is true. And I, I actually, I'm going to take that challenge for myself because it is very easy for me to give the shoulds to mm -hmm. myself. And I, I have better awareness around that when it comes to 
being in conversation with my kids and what I'll give them. But I will put that awareness away and don't keep it as as vigilant when it comes to myself. Um, is it there from a work perspective? Yes. But when it comes to um, the life perspective and where that will show up in work, I have a lot of room to work on that and to do better at it because, you know, there are those stories that I have been given, the ways that I was conditioned to process things or to think about things and uh, how I process my own worth and what I um, should be doing in order to be worthy of taking a break, for an example, whatever that might be. And so I do think really making that literal list of like, when does this come up? When does it like to show up? It's like, oh, it really does show up constantly and everywhere. And just like, you know, deciding to shift your nutrition, the more that you are aware of and are paying attention to and documenting what you're doing, the more you're like, oh, I didn't think that little thing counted. And I was doing it way more than what I thought I was. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great example. It's like I, I was sneaking some things. <laughs> I should not have been. Or I wasn't. Or I was doing three tablespoons of peanut butter instead yes. of two. That. It is so easy <laughs> yeah. to be like, or like, I drank so much water. And it's like, no, that bottle was 17 ounces, not 20. So you're really like a whole bottle behind. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Yes. Uh, and Erica, if there's, can I add one more thing? Yes, sort of please. cherry on top here. I want to make the point clear that it is not our individual responsibility to fix capitalism or to overthrow capitalism. There is no individual action that we can take to make that happen. And capitalism, there is an incentive structure there that makes individualism uh, seem like the only option. It seems like it's always up to us, that we're, you know, that personal growth is how we make societal change, that um, that higher education, that educating ourselves more is how we earn more, like all of these things. Um, And it is true. It has to be a collective action. And one of the wonderful things about increasing your awareness around when your values are being hijacked by the system is that it is also an opportunity for solidarity. And so when you see how your values are hijacked by the system and you see how you're being used on behalf of capitalism and capitalist ends, you start to see how other people are as well. And you start to see, you start to have more empathy and more understanding for people in all sorts of different situations who are also being used. And that helps us come together to make real change. But it's not something that any one of us can do. It is not all on your shoulders or my shoulders. We all have a part to play, but it requires collective action and solidarity to get it done. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for saying it that way, because you are absolutely accurate. There is no saviorism in this. It is is not that. And this is where I often feel like you know, insert system here, whether it's capitalism, whether it's, um, you know, white supremacy, like it doesn't matter or any aspect of it. I, you know, very often you'll, you'll hear this like, oh, well, we have to change laws. And it's like, no, it's grassroots. And I've always felt like it's top down and bottom up. And yep. it's not about any one person. It's not about any one action. But the more that the actions 
are based in awareness and the more that it spreads and the more that it can't fester unchecked and unnoticed, that's where things really are going to happen. But I agree 100%. There is no, I have to stop capitalism. I am capitalism because that's, it was here way before we got here. It will likely be here after we're gone. Hopefully there will be some some shifts <laughs> that we have maybe played a really tiny role in. But it, it is all of these things combined that gets us there. And so it is just us kind of understanding where we can contribute versus be the full eradicator. Absolutely. Amen. Love this. So, of course... Anytime we're here, I love to make sure that there's this, first of all, moment of thank you for everything that you shared from, you know, your your insight, your experiences, your journey. And there's just been so much here. So for all of that, Tara, I'm appreciative. And I want the people to be able to know where they can continue to take in content from you, learn more about you. And when it comes time for the book, we're going to be talking about the book more too. So just put that out there. Yeah. So um, first off, thank you for the conversation um, because I love talking about this stuff and and Sean only wants to talk about it with me so much, um, <laughs> even though we're totally on the same page. Um, so uh, the best place to find me since you're already listening to Pause on the Play is the What Works podcast. You can find that wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you listen to Pause on the Play. Um, I talk a lot about capitalism there, but my main goal is to ask questions and explore questions that help people navigate the 21st century economy without losing their humanity. And um, everything that we talked about today relates to that mission and that uh, objective for the show. And then the book is called What Works? A Comprehensive Framework to Change the Way We Approach Goal Setting. Um, and again, it's everything that we talked about today. Um, I guarantee you it is unlike any goal setting book you have ever read because uh, we talk about capitalism. We talk about Protestant work ethic. We talk about rugged individualism. We talk about all sorts of things that you didn't know you needed to know about goal setting. And you can find that at explorewhatworks.com slash book or wherever you buy books. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I know that people will continue learning more about exactly what we're talking about. I think the book is an amazing place to continue this. And again, for your time and everything that makes you amazing and for sharing that with me and allowing the listeners to be a part of this or those that are reading the article. As always, Tara, thank you. Thank you. So for everybody that listened to this entire episode, whether it was in one part, two parts, or however many parts it took you, because I know it's a little longer than we normally do. Thank you. Because as we were recording, I didn't even look at the timer because it didn't even matter. This needed all the breathing room that it needed. And I was fully here for it. And it was so good. And all of the places that Tara went with me. I felt like really gave something great that I know I'm going to want to come back to. I know it gave so many things that you can come back as the listener or the reader of the article and be able to kind of be like, okay, you know, am, am I going with the thing that she, she suggested and laying out where the shoulds want to come up for me? You know, do I have any of these narratives that come up for me? Like, you know, I'm not a linear thinker so therefore my way of existing isn't as worthy or isn't as good or in, insert you know story here there's so much 
necessary work that we are doing to expand our awareness on a moment to moment, minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day kind of basis. And the more that we can find access to allow ourselves to do this in a way that feels uh, safe and and uh, conducive for us, it, it really does make such a difference for us and those that we're able to support and influence. And it can absolutely show up as a part of your imperfect allyship efforts. But more than anything else, it just allows it to show up as support as you are a human being. Not a human being, a human being. So as always, Whenever you show up here and you take in these real conversations that we are doing together so that we can normalize the challenging things and make them a part of our everyday exchanges, I thank you. Together, this is how we remove stigma and create real change and connection. Together, cross lines and recreate boundaries in order to support, not separate. Together, we can continue to get more people dropping the veil while challenging their thoughts feelings, actions, and state of being. So, till the next time, keep the dialogue going. Bye.